Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather tonight once again to uh, to look into your word, Lord, and just uh, pray that you would be the head of the proceedings tonight, Lord, that you would uh, power and power Dr. Belair, Lord, by your spirit to share more with us from this uh, this book that she has studied intensely, and just pray that uh, we would be able to take something home tonight, Lord, that we would leave different than we came in tonight. So we just thank you and praise you for all these things. Hashem Yeshua HaMashiach, Lord. Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 Shalom. Yeah, last week we spent some time with one of our favorite biblical characters, Rahab, and so what an amazing woman she is. And thank you. And tonight we're gonna we're gonna get to Canaan. We're gonna cross the Jordan. We're gonna make it into the land before we leave. And so, in order to orient us, I made a map so we would know uh, where we are and where we're going. Actually, uh, here is Shittim. Because remember the spies left from Shittim, went across to Jericho, and we don't know how they got there. The text doesn't tell us but it tells us that they got there. Now the next two chapters, chapters three and four, actually are, uh, you know, describe for us uh, the crossing. But before we do that, it's uh, important for us to understand some details of the geography in order to be able to visualize a little bit what's going on. North, south, here's the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea. So the Israelites came from the south somewhere, made their way east, you know, through Edom and Moab, and somewhere up here is Mount Nebo, where Moses could see the whole valley, because down here is 1,300 feet below sea level. Well, Jerusalem, here's Jerusalem, which is a couple thousand feet above sea level. So they're about 3,000 feet uh, drop uh, plus from Jerusalem down to Jericho to the Dead Sea. So it's a real, real pretty steep climb from Jericho to Jerusalem and even more steep climb on the east side of the Jordan where you almost have some cliffs and they get you to the top of the Jordanian plateau. And as I was uh, looking at this map and putting this together, I noticed that everything begun, begins with J. Jerusalem, Jericho, the Jarmuk, well, kind of, and the Jabbok. And those are two rivers that come from the hills of uh, Jordan and uh, uh, end up pouring into the Jordan, of course, because it's lower altitude. Also, other water, uh, bodies of water that feed the Jordan are, there's a river here called, I believe, Habani or something like that, Yahasbani, and it goes into Lebanon. And there's a Banias River that goes towards the northeast, towards Damascus in Syria. And, and then Mount Hermon is here just at the edge of Syria. When you're in, in Israel, in northeast Israel, here at the border, 
you can be right at the border and you're looking at Syria and Lebanon. So you can see Mount Hermon quite well. And even in the month of May, you can be there and there's snow on Mount Hermon. So uh, you can't go to it, you can't reach it, but, uh, but you're very close. You're, Syria is just down the hill. <coughs> and so water, bodies of water that pour into the Hula Valley, just north of the Sea of Galilee, then into the Sea of Galilee, and then end up coming down and gathering even more water coming down towards the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea evaporates, and if you go, you can't swim in the Dead Sea, you can only float. You can't sink in the Dead Sea because of the, the high content, the high mineral content. So you can, uh, you can bring your newspaper and <laughs> sit it on the Dead Sea and read the newspaper. And impossible to sink. You just don't want to get any water in your eyes because it stings quite badly. And uh, the first time I went to Israel, we had gone to the south, to the uh, to Elat, which is uh, just uh, on the Gulf, uh, where you have Saudi Arabia and Jordan, and you can actually uh, see Egypt. You can see four countries from there. And we had gone uh, um, snorkeling. There was a reef and one of the fellows went over the reef, but at the wrong place, so he scratched himself all over the place. And the ne next day we went in, and swimming <laughs> in the Dead Sea. So he walked in. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, uh, it healed all his bruises very quickly. And, uh, so here the Israelites came around and they're ready to go in, the transfer of leadership from Moses to uh, Joshua. Now, Jordan uh, comes from the, the root for Yarad, means to go down, and uh, so Yarad is a verb that is common in Hebrew, so it comes down from the north to the south and, and fills in. So in chapter 3, the text tells us that the Jordan was going over its banks, at this time of the year when they crossed. So uh, let's turn to Joshua. Now, the Jordan River, it has a lot of twists and turns. Some places is wider, some places is narrower. So there are about 200 miles of Jordan River, but as the crow flies, it's only 70 miles. So there's a lot of zigzag that takes place in the river itself. And I, I was thinking about the expression, as the crow flies, do, do crows fly straight? <laughs> and never, never take our sidetrack, I don't know, but anyway. Um, when, you, when English is your second language, you know, you wonder where things come from. I create my own idioms. All right, one thing that we know in biblical times also, now, by the way, Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, is right here. It's just south of Jericho, and it's on the west side of the Dead Sea. So this is, there are caves there, and that's where the Essenes lived, and that's where in the caves of the, the mountains. Oh, is that north or south of Masada? 
Uh, Masada is further uh, further south. Okay. Yeah. So Iran would be also. Yes, that's right. So Iran is further south, Masada further north. You have Hebron, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and here is Qumran. And En Gedi, just south of that, is you have is an oasis, and you have beautiful waterfalls there, and a lot of uh, animals, hybex. And with the big horns are there, and they're very friendly. Often you can feed them with your, you know, with your hands. Uh, you can get quite close to them. And also in that area, well, we know that in Israel, in biblical times, they had lions and leopards, and they had a number of animals that are not there anymore. Except that uh, friends of mine from the Jerusalem University College, he was dating a gal. Uh, who had come on a short-term program, and they went to the area of Qumran and were between Qumran and Gedi, and they were sitting on a big rock, and all of a sudden they saw this leopard walking (laughs) below them. (laughs) So it was a very quiet dating moment. uh, So so there are still uh, animals... uh, some wild animals there, but not very many. Wild boars, we saw whole groups of wild boars uh, in the Galilee, and so they may be elsewhere also. What's wrong with that? Did you? Huh? I saw wild boars in the Galilee, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that picture? Yeah. <laughs> well, they're the pigs that were thrown in, uh, told to go and jump into the, the Sea of Galilee, so. You know, when Jesus commanded them to go jump, and they jump. And I, I guess not all of them jumped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. There was a remnant hiding in the bushes. I'm sorry. The Negev is the southern part of. Uh, here is uh, Judah, the Judean hills. Samaria is up here or Israel, the northern kingdom. And the Negev is down here. Does it really look like New Mexico? The Negev, it's very... uh, Arid? Yeah, yeah, it's desert. But you have craters, you have what they call the super bowl, the big bowl, the, the small bowl. They're actually craters where the earth um, uh, ended up caving in underneath. Uh, it's like uh, holes in the, the ground itself, and then the top eventually caved in. And so you have some, the Super Bowl is, has, you know, probably 30 miles long, I think. It's quite, quite a long crater. And, and then you have a few smaller ones. So it's beautiful uh, to go to some places, the, the, the wilderness of Zin, which is probably not the same as the biblical wilderness of Zin, is one of the most beautiful places in the land, I think. And it's in the Negev. And you can go hiking there, and it's like hiking in the Grand Canyon, where you have the, the massive walls uh, of rocks on both sides, and so on the trip. So just by the way, if you're interested in going to Israel, let me know. You know, we're going next May. And so that's one of the things that I love to do, going and hiking in the wilderness. It's just gorgeous. So in Joshua chapter 3, uh, if we look at... Uh, uh, if someone would read from verse... Um, 
Yeah, 14 to 17. They volunteer with a strong voice. Kevin, you got it? I want to so volunteer. The people have tents to cross the, jar, the, the Jordan. And it's going to be in carrying the ark for the covenant and of the people. And those carrying the ark had come to the Jordan. Uh, and the Kohenian carrying the ark had waded into the water, for throughout the harvest season, the Jordan overflows its banks. The water upstream, throughout the har excuse me, the water upstream stood piled up like an embankment for a great distance at Adam, the city next to Tsarzim, so that the water flowing downstream for the city of Abaroth. The Dead Sea was completely cut off, and the people crossed over right by Jericho. Okay. Uh, one more? One more. Mm -hmm. The Kohanim carrying the ark for the covenant of Adonai stood fast on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry land until the entire nation had finished crossing Jordan. Okay, so it tells us that the waters didn't stop here. The waters didn't stop where they crossed. The waters actually were coming down full flood stage of the Jordan overflowing its banks and coming down and stopped at maybe 20 miles up at Adam. And that is where the water stopped flowing. So did it stop flowing, and then by the time they crossed, their area was dry? We don't know, but it specifies that they walked on dry ground. And where else do we see people walking on dry ground because the waters are parted? Uh, the Exodus. And, uh, but those are not the only places. We have two crossings on dry ground that we know of. The Exodus, this one, you know two others? Hmm? Elijah crossed on dry ground. So the waters of the Jordan parted two more times after this. Now it is a few centuries later. Look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 2. And uh, when they're in the land already, this is 9th century prophets. 9th century means in the 800s B.C., and so if the Israelites came in the land around 1300, uh, we see another si uh, similar miracle at uh, the Jordan uh, 500 years later, four or 500 years later. And Second Kings, what? Second Kings chapter 2. Yeah, let's read the, the chapter and see what happened when you have Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is about to leave, and Elisha won't let him off his sight. You know, he's being told all the time, let him go, let him go. And uh, he won't. So in verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass, when Adonai was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind into heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to, Elisha, uh, to Elisha, Stay here, please, for Adonai has sent me on to Bethel. Now Bethel is on, uh, is on the hills north of uh, Jerusalem. All right, so 
They're at Gilgal, north of Jerusalem. They're going to Bethel, north of Jerusalem. Uh, and verse 3, Then the sons of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that Adonai is going to take your master away from, from over you today? He said, Yes, I know. Be silent. In other words, check it. <laughs> but that's not the root it uses in the Hebrew. It uses another one. A sheket is actually a root. Uh, it's easy to remember because it sounds a little bit like shut up, you know. <laughs> and just, so be quiet. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And so verse 4. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for Adonai has sent me on to Jericho. So he, there, he's going to go from Bethel down to Jericho. Jordan. To Jericho. To, to Jericho in verse 4? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that phrase is repeated more than once. So you're looking a little further down. So, first in verse 4, it says, uh, going down to Jericho. But he said, As Adonai lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Then the sons of the prophets at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that Adonai is going to take away your master from over you today? He replied, yes, I know, be quiet. <laughs> then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for Adonai has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as Adonai lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So both of them went on. You know when you, when you find a good thing, <laughs> you don't want to let it go? You recognize someone who is a leader, has mentored you, is anointed of God, you know, you want to get the mentoring going as long as you possibly can. Then verse 7, Then fifty of the sons of the prophets went and stood aside at a distance from them, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah then took his mantle, wrapped it together, and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. The same expression that is used in Exodus, same expression that is used in chapter 3 of Joshua. Now as they were crossing over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I will do for you before I'm taken from you. So Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He replied, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be so to you. But if not, I will not it will not be so. As they were walking along and talking, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. As Elisha was watching, he was crying out, Avi, Avi, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. Then he saw him no more. So he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He then picked up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him when he returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen off him, struck the waters, and said, Where is Adonai, the God of Elijah? Well, yeah, if it worked for him, here's his mantle. May it work for me too. You know. As he indeed struck the waters, they parted here and there. Then Elisha crossed over. So it is the fourth time that we have a crossing over uh, mentioned three times it says specifically on dry ground it's the exodus the uh, the Israelites going into Canaan uh, uh, Elijah and Elisha going across to the eastern side of the Jordan and then probably on dry ground the same thing happened it's just not uh, explicit here so there are a number of things that happened 
at the Jordan, we go to the Jordan today and people get baptized and think mainly of John the Baptist and the baptisms that took place there. But there are a lot of other uh, amazing things that took place there. Another one is in 2 Kings chapter 5. And in that chapter, we have the story of Naaman, the Syrian, who needed, who had leprosy. So the story tells us the story. Um, and, you know, at first, Naaman was quite insulted that he was told by the prophet, go down to uh, wash in the Jordan. Let's read from verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. So Elisha sent him a messenger saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman was angered and walked away saying, I thought he would surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of Adonai his God and wave his hands over the spot and cure the tsarat, the leprosy. Aren't uh, Amana and Farfar, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached him and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more than when he told you only, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. Then his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. But the most important part of the story hasn't happened yet. Because there he says, when he returned with his entire retinue to the man of God and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So this really almost sounds like what Jericho said to the spies. Your God is the God of heaven and earth. And this is what Naaman is saying. It's nice to be physically healed, but what he was doing here uh, was showing that he really uh, discovered who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was. And not only for himself, now please accept a present from your servant. Verse 16 but Elisha said, As Adonai before whom I stand lives, I will accept nothing. Naaman pressed him to accept, but Elisha refused. So Naaman said, If not, then please let your servant be given two mule loads of soil, for your servant will no longer offer, offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any other god except Adonai. In this matter may Adonai pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my hand, and I prostrate myself in the house of Rimon. When I prostrate myself in the house of Rimon, may Adonai pardon your servant in this matter. So in other words, his heart turned completely to Adonai in this story. And so it's not just that he was physically healed by going in the Jordan, but it really is more of a story of a conversion of the heart. And that he left, he did like Rahab, she left her Canaanite gods behind and said, I'm going with you. You have the living God. And that's what uh, he said here also. You have the living God. I, ha I see the proof now. Sometimes we need a physical proof, but that's not the end of it. It has to be a change in the heart. So when we go to the Jordan River, it's nice to be baptized and to remember John the Baptist and Jesus and the Lamb of God who came to uh, 
take away the sins of the world, but it's also interesting to, to remember all kinds of other things that took place at the Jordan. God dried, stopped the waters in a season that was the, the, the season where the, the snow from Mount Hermon was melting. The snow from the hills of Jordan were, was <coughs> melting. And uh, everything was coming down into uh, the river, and the river was overflowing. So it was. Uh, so we know from the text that this was spring, because that's when snow melts usually. And uh, also, as soon as they come in, they celebrate Passover. And we're told that they celebrate Passover on the tenth of the first month, exactly uh, as it happened uh, in uh, on the date that was. Uh, 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 that reflects the first exodus out of Egypt. So a lot of uh, exciting things happen at the Jordan River. and so. But now they're about to cross and go into the land. Moses had said to them, look, there it is. We're finally here. You know, and see, look, it's there for you. So they're about to cross over. Now what's the order? Let's go back to Joshua. Chapters 3 and 4 talk about the crossing. But chapters 3 and 4 are not sequential. If you try to make a sequence of all the details of chapters 3 and 4, it's, it's, it doesn't work. Because there are details that are repeated when it says that they've all made it to one side, all of a sudden the priests are still in the middle of the river, and all of a sudden, you know. So, so scholars, let, let's read it and see. Try to follow the order of things, and then you're going to find out that there's overlap and there's backtracking, and so not everything is, is presented. Uh, so it looks like two stories were merged together. Somehow, so scholars look at that and say, "Well, why, you know, why isn't it just one story that flows right through?" And uh, you know, uh, the way the biblical text came together is is more complex than what we have made it many times. It's not just you know the funnel from heaven where they wrote everything in order. Yes, in King James version, you know, and. Uh, no, it's, you know, stories were told. Sometimes they were written at some point. They were transmitted orally. And then eventually they came together. And by the time that they became the canon of uh, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was accepted by the Jewish community, uh, it was what, what is accepted, what is used in the liturgy, what is used for uh, in teaching and preaching, and what are the religious texts of the community. So we don't know who wrote the book of Joshua, wh who wrote which part. You know, most of the books say this is the book of Jonah, but it's all in third person. Jonah, he did this. Jonah, he did that. Ezekiel, he did this. Ezekiel, he did that. And we have the impression that because a book is named by somebody's name that they wrote the book. Well, most of the time they didn't write the book. And so there are some places where I, 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 but most of the time it's written in third person. So who wrote, you know, after the fact, after it was transmitted, for how long orally, which parts orally, which parts were written first. The earliest we can go for the written piece is the Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 B.C., because we don't have 
the Hebrew text. We have little fragments. We have the little silver amulet with the Aaronic blessing that was found in Jerusalem in the 70s. And, uh, and it's a biblical text, but we don't have scrolls that, uh, that give us, you know, when things were written, who wrote, and they're not signed, you know. Signed by Baruch, we know he wrote. Very clear. Baruch was the scribe of Jeremiah, and Baruch, they come to, to him and they say, the Babylonians even say to him, how do, how do you, you know, come up with this stuff or something like that? And he says, well, Jeremiah dictates to me and I write. So Jeremiah didn't write it down. He had a, a scribe, and scribe were trained for that. And... Uh, I wrote, recorded the text. But for most of the Hebrew text, we don't know who wrote, who was the first one to actually write the text itself. All right, so we're about ready to cross the Jordan. So we're going to read chapters 3 and 4. may seem a little bit long, but, but see how uh, it's hard to do just sequential. Anybody would like to read this for us, nice and loud, in English? Go ahead. <laughs> but it'll be what? It will be in English. Yes, thank you. <laughs> then Joshua rose up early in the morning, and he and all the Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. They lodged there before crossing over. Now it came about after three days that the officials went through the camp, and they charged the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai your God, and the Levitical Covenant carrying it, then you must set out from your place and follow it. Yet keep a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Don't come near it, so you may know the way by which you should go, for you haven't traveled this way before. Then Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow Adonai will do wonders in your midst. Joshua spoke to the Kohanim, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went to Now, Okay, Adonai so said, let's pause here. So who are the first people to go in the Jordan? The Kohanim. And what are they carrying? The Ark. So I brought the Ark of the Covenant. So Kohan. This is a beautiful little box that uh, Zach made me for my 60th birthday. <laughs> so now the, the Aaron's wedding uh, <laughs> is in there. And so come up here. You are part of our... Uh, uh, so he's the first one who's going to dip in the water. Okay, so hang on to this. He's, he represents the Kohanim who were... Uh, who were uh, uh, first in dipping their feet in the water. Okay, keep going from there. You need reading? Yeah. Okay. okay. Now Adonai said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You are to command the Kohanim who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you reach the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you are to stand still in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the Israel, Come here and listen to the words of Adonai your God. 
Joshua said, By this you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girvishite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Now, notice that it says he will drive out from before you. Because when we look at all the passages that have to do with this group of Canaanite, Hittite, Hivite, Perizzite, Girgashites, Amorites, Jebusites, sometimes it's uh, he will destroy or you will destroy, but sometimes it's drive out. So there is, uh, there is a change in terminology, uh, depending if you're using military terms or if you're using non-military terms. Okay, to drive out is different from annihilating and destroying. Okay, so I, next week we're going to talk about the, the term, the terminology of war, uh, the hyperbolic language in military reports and that type of thing. And, uh, but start noticing that it doesn't always say the same thing. Even in Deuteronomy, you have different... Uh, texts that say destroy them or drive them out. Okay? So, alright, verse 11. Um, behold, the ark of the covenant of the sovereign of all of the earth is advancing before you into the Jordan. So now, take for yourselves twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. Okay, so I need twelve men, Aaron. You're my twelve men. <laughs> Okay, you're behind the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, Aaron's twelve minutes. <laughs> he is. Uh, behind me, okay, so I could if I tried to have everybody who's represented, nobody would be seated. <laughs> be okay. okay, keep going. It will come to pass when the soles of the feet of the Kohanim who are carrying the Ark of Adonai, sovereign of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The Jordan's waters will be cut off. The waters coming down the stream will stand up in one heap. So it came to pass. When the people set out from their tents to cross over the Jordan, the Kohanim were carrying the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the harvest season. But as soon as those who were carrying the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the Kohanim carrying the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the town next to Zaretan. What was flowing down to the sea of the Araba, the sword sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Yet the Kohanim, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai, stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed over on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan. Okay, so who's coming next? Based on this, Anya. You're the Israelites. Okay, so we're at a point where first it reads as if God is giving instructions. This is what you're going to do, but then it changes to past tense. Then this is what they did. Okay, so by the time we get here, they walked on dry ground. They carried the ark. Uh, okay, done. All right, the last verse, of, uh, chapter 3. Yet the Kohen carrying the ark of the covenant of Adonai stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed over on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So you're all across the Jordan now. Okay. 
Okay? But stay there. <laughs> now go uh, into chapter 4. Okay. Does someone else want to read? Anyone else? I mean, I can read, but someone else might want to read. <laughs> Nobody's out there. Read. You're doing well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, when all the nation finished crossing over the Jordan, Alan I spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourself twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the feet of the Kohanim are standing full, and carry them over with you, and deposit them at the place where you lodge tonight. Well, that's interesting, because the twelve men are supposed to already be across the Jordan, but here they're being told, when you get to the place where the Kohanim are standing in the middle of Jordan, pick up stones. I was going to bring stones, I forgot. But, uh, okay, so, whoops, we're back on the on the east side of the Jordan. Okay, let's keep reading from here. Verse 4. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from Bene Israel, one man from each tribe. Joshua said to them, cross over before the ark of Adonai your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you lift up a stone on his shoulder with a number of the tribes of Bene Israel. Let this be a sign among you. When your children ask you to say, What do these stones mean to you? Then you will say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of Adonai, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones will be a reminder to Bene Israel forever. Okay, so notice here the same type of question that we have with the Exodus. One day when the children ask, you know, what is this about? Why are we doing it this way? And we have the same type of thing here. When the children ask, you know, in the future. So it's always establishing for the next generation to make sure uh, that they know what happens. So building an altar of uh, uncut stones or even altars of cut stones often were altars, uh, memorial altars of... in to memorialize uh, a major event or something that God had done for them. It wasn't an altar for sacrifice. And we're going to see when we get to, to Joshua chapter 22, we should get there by the end of September, and, uh, <laughs> that, um, that the, the building of an altar ends up being misinterpreted and create some conflict there, which, which is a very interesting chapter. So here, say, okay, we're going to build an altar on the west side of the Jordan to in remembrance of uh, what God did here, major event. Okay, keep reading. So Israel did so, as Joshua commanded. They lifted 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as Adonai had said to Joshua, for the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Joshua also set up twelve stones at the middle of the Jordan, at the spot where the feet of the Kohenim carrying the Ark of the Covenant were standing. They are there to this day. Okay, a few interesting things here. Joshua put twelve stones at the feet of the Kohanim, and the twelve men are told to pick up a stone. Were those the same stones? Were they different stones? <laughs> okay. Now, we go by what the text tells us. The text is not always clear. 
So did he deposit the stones there and they picked them? We don't even know where Joshua was. Was he in front? Was he in the back? Was he in the middle? We're not even told that. But to me, when it says Joshua also, yeah. it seems to mean in a, uh, in Well, to I looked at it in the Hebrew and I think that also... is not possible. Yeah, I, I find it uh, not as clear in the Hebrew okay. uh, translation. Well, what do you think? Well, Joshua also did that, but did he do that before, or did he do that, uh, are they the same? It still doesn't change necessarily which stones did the 12 uh, representatives pick up, you know? So because some things are not all in order, we don't know if Joshua deposited them there before the 12 men came by. But it says they're there until this day. And I well, that's interesting because if you put 12 stones in the Jordan at the pace at which the Jordan River flows, oh, no. you know, first of all, who knows? And second, the stones are going to go with the Jordan. You know, so what does it mean? You often read this expression, it is there until this day, which gives you a clue that whenever things were written down, they may have been written down quite a while after the event, and then maybe an altar was still there, but it was placed there a century or two or three before. Okay? Things are there until this day. This place is named after so-and-so until this day, or, or named based on a certain event until this day. Of course, until the day of whoever wrote the text. Wait, does that mean until this day? No, roads until the day that it was written. Okay, because I, we can't take this and interpret this, bring this. This has to be descriptive. It's simply describing what the author or whoever the scribe wrote that story down, that event down, till that day. Yeah. And so, but we don't know when that day was. We don't know what century that day was. Okay, So there are some things like this that we can't always explain because if somebody found a set of scrolls of these texts uh, around 1000 BC, that would make a big difference because then we would know that the texts were not written down the first time in the 9th century or in the 8th century or in the 7th century or in the 6th century, or after the exile, as some people, some scholars would say. And so the earlier the written evidence that you have, then at least you know that the events had to be before that. You know, and that they... So, but we don't have that. The earliest that we have is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we don't have books and scrolls before that. Okay, let's keep going. We are at verse... <coughs> Three, ten. 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 The Godanim who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything that Adonai had commanded Joshua to speak to the people was completed, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people hurried across, and when all the people had finished crossing over, the ark of the covenant and the Kohanim crossed over in the presence of the people. Also, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed ahead of the Israel, just as Moses had said to them. Okay, so before the Israelites, we have another group, the Eastern men. 
because we really have only nine and a half tribes that are going across the Jordan, plus the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, to whom Moses gave the land east of the Jordan. So we need to have, would you like to be our, um, our eastern men? Now, where do they fit? They come before the Israelites. All right? So in chapter 3, we're not even told about them. But in chapter 4, we're reminded, and we read that text last week, that uh, Moses gave the instructions that the, the men from the eastern tribes were to go before the rest of the Israelites in the conquest of the land. And they're going to stay with them until Joshua chapter 22, which is quite a while later. And they will stay with them and help them uh, take over the land, settle in the land, until the division of the land takes place. And so only then, at the end, when they they are finally all in the land, uh, then does Joshua say to them, okay, now you can go home. And in chapter 22 is when they, they cross over to go home. I'm confused. Uh-huh. How do we have 12 tribal reps? The three of the tribes on one side and the rest on the other? I'm confused. Yeah, but the 12 tribes are involved in going across. The men of the, tw- of the two and a half tribes are going along with the, uh, the nine and a half tribes of this side. Yeah, so there are representatives of the 12 tribes going across. But the women, the children, the animals of the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh, stay on the east yeah, side. No, I'm confused by, we have 12 tribal reps, yeah. which would represent the men from the two and a half that go on this side and the nine and a half that go on here. Yeah. So who are the eastern men? All the men who are of uh, fighting men. So this is only 12 men. This is all the men oh, of so war. That's yeah, right. That's it, of Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh. Oh, so they said not only did they have reps, they also had men who had to go first. That's right. And they were to go in front of the, the rest of the nine and a half tribes. Okay? And uh, we, we read that in Deuteronomy last week. Uh, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, I can't remember which verses, but Moses was quite clear in saying to the two and a half tribes, your fighting men, military men, are going across to help them settle until they're completely settled, and then they'll go back to join their, their wives and, and children and, and parents, grandparents, and etc. All right? Does that help? So here's only 12. There's a bunch more. Okay. Tov. Let's keep going. We are at verse... 13, actually. 13. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed over before Adonai for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, Adonai exalted Joshua in the eyes of all Israel. So they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Then Adonai spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the Kohanim who are carrying the ark of the testimony to come up from the door. I thought they were already crossed over. <laughs> All right. Joshua therefore commanded the Kohanim, saying, Come up from the Jordan. As soon as the Kohanim, who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai, came up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the feet of the Kohanim were drawn up to the dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks, 
Okay, so how, where were the Kohanim then? Okay, Kohanim, they are, he's in the middle of the Jordan. He came first, he came first in the middle of the Jordan, the waters had stopped, and then the tribal representatives go pick up stones, uh, and then keep going, and the eastern tribes keep going, and the Israelites keep going, and then, who are the last people to go into Canaan? The Kohanim with the ark. So uh, so the the image of having the ark in front and behind. And you think in the wilderness they had the presence of God in front of them to show them where to go. They had the presence behind them to protect them also. So it's almost uh, they are surrounded really by the presence of God which is what the ark of the covenant uh, represented. Never left them. But they were told to keep their distance from the ark, and it was a pretty sizable distance. Who was told to keep the distance? It's when when the um, when Joshua says, "Get ready," to all these people, "Get ready, come on on this side of the Jordan." Okay, and when he says to all the people, "Get ready, get ready." But keep, make sure that you keep your distance so you can see where the ark is. Don't go cross over there. Don't go cross over there. You know, I made people just kind of, you know. Uh, no, make sure that you keep, keep a distance, but keep your eyes. And I think that the way it is said is not so as not to touch, but it is in order to make sure that you can see you know, the group of, of uh, who are carrying the ark. Sometimes when you're too close in the middle of a big crowd, you don't see. So that's how I read the instructions that are given by Joshua. Okay? So, of course, they go by uh, the ark, but if you're talking about tens of thousands of people, I mean, how many end up really close to the ark? There's only those who, you know... Uh, and the idea of numbers also in the Bible is another issue. How many were there? Okay, it tells us here there were 40,000. Uh, sometimes the word thousands and hundreds of thousands is, is used, and scholars have debated whether does it always mean thousand, or can it mean a units of... Uh, 40 units of military men or something like this. 40 units of fighting men. Because it specifies the men in that 40,000. Doesn't specify, you know, all the others. Women, children, animal, and 40,000. So sometimes when you're in Israel and you look, uh, you look at the size of the area and you think, where do you put 2 million people? You know? I mean, the numbers don't make, don't work with the geography. So sometimes, uh, so that has been proposed that could it be that Elef doesn't always mean a thousand? And, you know, a day is like a thousand years. Well, is it literally like a thousand years, you know? Or what is the idea? So, and what's interesting when you look at the numbers in the Bible is, you know, there were 340,000, 700,000, 72,000. Never 
247,052. <laughs> you know, I mean, unless it's a census where they actually counted the people in the tribes. But many times those numbers are rounded, round numbers that you think is it always exactly. So you have different schools of thought on this. Yes, it's literally this many thousand people. Or no, because if you think that 40,000 men, uh, and what about all the children, and so how many really went across? That would have been huge numbers. And so maybe it makes sense that the hearts of the people in Jericho melted. Why? Because, first of all, their God couldn't be stopped through, you know, military opposition. And then second, because they were a large group. And they're told several times also, you have multiplied and you are a great, uh, you know, uh, God has blessed you with many people. So sometimes the numbers are difficult to match with uh, the geography. And, uh, but sometimes they say, okay, 40,000 is 40,000, you know. But, uh, but the idea here that you have the Kohanim go in the middle, they're, they're in, the, at, in front, they're carrying the presence of God, then everybody makes it across. And you know, it's a vulnerable thing to do. Because what if there's an ambush on both sides? The Moabites and the Canaanites. I mean, it would have been a great opportunity. You know, to kind of say, ha-ha, they're in the middle of, you know, uh, this valley. and, and uh, But no, I mean, people were melting in fear. And that was told in Deuteronomy, that God would cause the, the hearts of the people to melt in fear when they saw them coming because, of who, because their God was doing such amazing things for them. And so, so we have made it across the Jordan. So thank you very much. Now we are. We're in Canaan. Hallelujah. And just a couple more things. So, what we can see. Thank you very much. What we can see in looking at chapters three and four is that the way it is written is not sequential. There is overlap, there's backtracking, there's, uh, uh, there are a couple of details that are hard to figure out, which rocks were, were, uh, came from where. And uh, also, the presence of God not just being with them, but being in front of them, in the middle of them, behind them, and always uh, his presence went over with them. Now the next chapter is interesting, and I'm going to close with this. Three things happen in the next chapter. They made it to the east side of the Jordan, they're in Canaan. Glory be to God. How do we do this, you know? <laughs> okay, what do we do now? And so what's the first thing they do? Circumcision at Gilgal. Well, that's another puzzling idea, you know? I mean, here you come in, the, those Canaanites are supposed to be utterly wicked, and you come in their land, and what you do is you incapacitate all your men. And isn't that a bizarre time? The timing seems to be, so the vulnerability of crossing in this open space, possibly an ambush, the vulnerability of all the men being circumcised right after they get uh, on the uh, west side of the Jordan, 
they get into Canaan. So the time that it takes for them to recover from that, but it's the sign of their covenant, uh, the covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it, the three things that they do in this chapter really establishes the presence of God in their midst. And their relationship with God is what is most important. God will take care of them while they're healing and while they're celebrating. Second thing, they celebrate the Passover. It is the 10th, uh, the 14th of the first month, so they celebrate the Passover. So the circumcision, you can read from verses 1 down to verse 8. And then, uh, well, more than that, verse 9. And then verse 10 talks about while the Bene Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, matzot and roasted grain. Glory be to God. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten of the produce of the land. B'nai Israel had manna no longer, but ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan that year. A new diet, a new life, a new home, a new pivotal moment in the life of Israel. There are no more nomads. They've come home, and the life is changing. They will be able to plant seeds. They'll be able to, to establish homes, build cities, and all of this. And the last thing that happens in this chapter is a theophany. In verse 13, it says, Now it came to pass when Joshua was near Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man standing in front of him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua approached him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Neither, he said. Rather, I have now come as the commander of Adonai's army. Then Joshua fell on his face to the ground and worshipped. Then he asked him, What is my Lord saying to his servant? Then the commander of Adonai's army replied to Joshua, Take your sandals off of your foot, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Where else do we see this? Just go back, and we'll end with this, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 8. Very similar uh, theophany. Uh, What happens with Moses, what happens with Joshua. But really, God confirming, I'm with you. This, this is a, a, a God thing, an Adonai thing. You know, it's, uh, you're not alone in this. Exodus chapter 3 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So he led the flock to the farthest end of the wilderness, coming to the mountain of God, Horeb. Then the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a flame of fire. Joshua saw the sword of fire from within a bush. So he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Moses thought, I will go now and see this great sight. Why is the bush not burned? When Adonai saw that he turned to look, he called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. He answered, Hineni, here I am. Then he said, come no closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So here in both cases, you have God immediately. It's a beginning, the beginning of Moses' uh, life as as the prophet, as uh, the one called to deliver Israel. The beginning of Joshua's uh, 
uh, leadership in the land and really God saying, uh, I'm, I'm, this is me here. I'm confirming that as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Wouldn't you agree that this is not an angel, but God? Because as Joshua bows down, the angel does not say, don't bow down, but, but affirms the, the worship yeah. that Joshua gives him. Is that yeah. Yeshua? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's Yeshua, but I would say it's God. And so whether it's the Father or Yeshua, or, you know, I don't want to put things into it. A theophany for me. But not me, an angel. Not an angel. That's my argument. Most of the time when you see Malach Adonai, an angel of the Lord or a messenger of the Lord, eventually the, the, the language changes to I. I am calling you to do this. I am, you know, eventually sometimes it says I am the Lord. So many times what first appears as an angel ends up being God speaking. So whether God uses a human form and speaks through that human form or that it is actually God appearing, uh, I have no problem. For me, it's an encounter with God. But I have a difficult time saying it's Yeshua, you know. Uh, maybe it's Yeshua, but it's God. It's the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in most, in most places where a messenger appears and speaks, starts speaking as if it were God speaking, it could very well be God using a human vessel or it could be that uh, God himself appears on the scene. Okay? Tov? So we're in Canaan. Hallelujah! So we're about to... Uh, so we've already... Now, we've backtracked a bit because last week... Uh, well, we had visited Canaan with the spies, but uh, now we're in Canaan. So next week we're going to talk about the language of violence and warfare. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for to share with us. Thank you for, uh, for all that you've imparted to us today through her. We just uh, pray that you would be with us this evening and uh, for, for next week. Thank you for the opportunity to be like this.